Thank you for joining us for the Sunrise Message of the Week podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Sunrise Christian Center and our sponsors, the Sun Network and Seattle Bible College. For more information, check out our website at isunrise.org. Help us get the word out by subscribing, downloading, rating, and commenting on our podcast. The more you interact with our content, the more people will hear it. This week, Pastor John brings us a message from our Kingdom Heart of a Disciple series called The Golden Rule. Uh, It's just so good to have you here today as we're going to continue our series, The Kingdom Heart of a Disciple. And we're going to continue this series in the Sermon on the Mount, the constitution of the kingdom, the pinnacle of all human understanding on morality and ethics and how we're to carry ourselves ultimately as followers of Christ. And we have a theme this year called Make is the New Go, that we not only want to go, we're not going to stop going into all the world, but while we go, we're supposed to be disciple makers. And sometimes we focus so much on the go, we forget that we got to make disciples. The, The commandment is actually not to go. It's implied that we already go. The commandment is to make disciples. That's what Jesus told his followers to do in Matthew 28. And so the first part of our series, we're talking about the kingdom heart of a disciple. Pretty soon we're going to talk about the kingdom power of a disciple and how allowing the power of God to flow through us forms us as followers of Christ as well as expands the kingdom through us preaching the powerful message of the gospel and seeing that message accompanied by signs, wonders, and miracles. So we got a lot of exciting things. we got some other stuff to talk about this year, but we've been doing a long part on the kingdom heart of a disciple. And that's all been all through Matthew 5, 6, and 7 as we're going through the Sermon on the Mount. And so we're going to pick up where we left off in Matthew chapter 7 today in verse 12 in just a moment, but let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity to get into the Word of God. And as we open up Matthew chapter 7, I pray that today you would open our hearts and that you would reveal yourself to us and you would bring conviction and you would bring strength and you would bring hope to us, Lord God, that we might be faithful to represent Jesus well in this age, Lord. And I thank you for the invitation that you give us for how we treat others and how we're to make a decision about the very course of our life. I pray that if we're in a place of confusion or uncertainty regarding our relationship with you, we have some knowledge of you, but Lord, today that you would make it clear who you are and what path we're to walk, that we might experience eternal life that you have purchased for us through your life, through your burial, through your death and your resurrection. Jesus, I thank you that you call us to a different way than the world. And though it's a costly way, it's a liberating way, full of life full of hope, full of a, a future, God, that we would have, that we have promised with you. And we thank you for that today. In Jesus' mighty name, God's people said, amen. amen. So Matthew chapter seven, the words of Christ. He says this, he says, so in everything, not just some things or part of the things, right? but in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it, but small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. So last week we talked about asking, seeking, and knocking, and those that persistently ask, seek, and knock, keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking, then they 
receive. Then they find. Then the doors are open for them. And we don't do that necessarily based on our own willpower, but we do it based on this amazing portrait of the Father in heaven that Jesus paints for us, that our Father is a good Father. That even a good earthly Father who gives good gifts to his kids is evil if you were to compare how good God is to how good an earthly Father is. A good earthly Father, you know, kind of hyperbole, kind of tongue-in-cheek is evil comparison to how good God is. Does that make sense? Like, he's so good, he makes a good dad look bad on earth. And that because he's so good, we can ask and we can seek and we can knock and we can persist and continue in this Christian life because we know how much he wants to give. It's more like a father that hides an Easter egg for you, right? Not hiding things from you, he's hiding them for you. He delights in you receiving and you finding and you getting the door open to you. He's not up there like trying to confuse you and make your life miserable and he's hiding things from you. And like, boy, if they really show me how bad they want this, you better ask, seek and knock. I don't know. Jump higher, search harder, knock on more doors, knock longer. I don't care if your knuckles are bleeding. Keep knocking if you want that door open. He's not like that. He's not the drill sergeant father. He's the father that's like, he's hidden stuff in the, in the Christian life. He, we're on this journey where we have to ask, seek, and knock. There needs to be some kind of pursuit, some kind of desperation in it. But it's like, I know my father's so good that even though I, don't, I haven't received it right now, the second I want it, there's something here good for me. And God develops us in that process of pursuit. And God is the father who gives us good things. And ultimately, as in Luke's account of this teaching, the good thing that he gives us is the Holy Spirit. Right? And then he wants, he wants us to have the Holy Spirit. And we see this picture of a good, generous, benevolent Father who wants to give us the Spirit. And it's so powerful. And then Jesus connects. This next thing he says, it seems so disconnected. Some uh, commentators and theologians look at this and say, well, it's kind of, he just pivots real hard. He goes from talking about who God is and our relationship to receiving good things from the Father. And then he says, so in everything, you need to do to others what you would have them do to you. You need to treat others the way you want to be treated. And some say it's so disconnected, but I would submit to you that this connection of our relationship to God and how it impacts our relationship with one another is tied together all throughout the record of Scripture. The greatest commandments are love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. But Jesus said, but the second is very much like it. It's love your neighbor as yourself. And in John's letter to the early church, he said, how can you say, how can you claim to love God who you don't see if you cannot love your brother who you do see? And so he, there, there's, there's constantly this connection between how we relate to God and how he relates to us and what God does for us and in us and our, uh, the impact that it has on uh, our relationships with others, and I think especially in a church that we believe that the Father gives the Holy Spirit. We're charismatic, Pentecostal. We believe in the power of the Holy Spirit currently in operation and that we get to participate with God speaking to us and through us. We get to see God do miracles, answer prayer, to cast devils out of people, heal sick bodies, do, do all sorts of amazing things, right? And, and sometimes we think of ourselves as more spiritual than we ought to because because God, by his grace, flows through us with this, this, the Holy Spirit and his power. And to be quite honest, as we're going to look at the golden rule and the two gates today, we're going to be looking at false prophets and false disciples in the next couple weeks as we wrap this series up. And it's, it's sobering because we could sometimes, I like what Mike Bickle said, he said that sometimes people in the prayer movement 
or the ones that are really devoted to seeing miracles and revival and awakening and signs and wonders and healings. And we, get, we can get under a, something called the, the pride of the cutting edge. We can start to think that we have a special place in God because like our church really believes we're not like all those other churches that just, that, you know, like, uh, you know, when, when people want a miracle, they come to sunrise. When people need it, they, you know, when, when somebody wants revival, they go. And, and where we should celebrate being prophetic and having the Holy Spirit and we should, we should contend to see the work of God done in our generation through his power and not... I want more prophecy, more of the power of the Spirit, more of the anointing. I want more of God. I want more revival services. But I don't want to be confused to think that it's a, if I'm really spiritually dynamic in my worship and praise and how I pray and how spiritual I sound, that somehow I'm impressing God if it doesn't lead to me treating others the way I want to be treated. And so we have to be very very careful in our Christian life that we are practicing the golden rule, as they call it, <laughs> right? It was actually Roman Emperor Alexander Severus in AD 20, 222 to 235. He was not a Christian, but he was traditionally the one that we trace the golden rule to. He was so impressed although not a Christian, by the comprehensiveness of this saying of Jesus that as a guide to good living, he had it inscribed in gold on the wall of his chamber. Shout out to all the artists. You never know what you do or create can actually impact culture for literally generations to come, right? So uh, the golden rule, we call it the golden rule. And uh, one of the things that you hear about... um, Throughout, uh, you'll hear people say, well, Christianity is pretty much the same as every, every other belief because everybody pretty much teaches treat your neighbor as yourself. But if you look at, look at this teaching, and of course Christianity is quite a bit unique from all other world belief systems as you study and examine the actual claims and tenets of our faith. Um, but if you look at other claims that, that teach something like the golden rule, of course they were teaching something like this in Jesus' day in Judaism and other comments like this don't use the positive form of it. They use the negative. And it was one of the Hebrew scholars of Jesus's day, Hillel, that uh, he provided, um, he gave us a famous summary of the law. He was challenged by a Gentile. A Gentile came to him and said, teach me the whole Torah or the whole law while I am standing on one leg. And one of uh, Hillel's rivals, Shammai, he, he denied the challenge. But Hillel reputedly replied, He's like, fine. You know, and the guy's like, show me. He's like, I'll show you. And he goes, do not do to your neighbor what is hateful to you. That is the whole Torah. The rest is commentary. <laughs> the rest is commentary. And what he's saying is that, what he's saying is that it's very similar to Jesus is saying, but it's the negative. Don't do to your neighbor what's hateful to you, right? Jesus said that we should do what we want other people to do to us. And both of them, of course, convey a very similar teaching, but most uh, inscriptions uh, are usually of the negative bent. Jesus teaches us a higher way that in everything that we do, we should do to others as we would have them do to us. So what is he saying in everything? Well, some translations use the word therefore here. And whenever you're studying the Bible, when you see the word therefore, you should find out what it's there for. 
Okay, yeah, it's true because therefore is a connecting word. Like I said, I love my wife, Grace. We've been married for 16 years. We have a covenant of marriage. Therefore, you know, when it's our anniversary, we do things to celebrate and remember how God's been faithful to us all these years and that we've made this marriage, right? There's a, it's a connection, right? And so Jesus gets to this part of this sermon. He's saying in everything or therefore, it's not just necessarily a general everything or a general therefore, but it means like, what has he been teaching us this? whole time he's been teaching us through the entire sermon on the mount the golden rule he's like in everything in your being poor in spirit your meekness being pure in heart and being merciful and going the extra mile and turning the other cheek by treating and honoring your spouse as a covenant partner in marriage and not committing adultery by dealing with lust and anger in a way that honors the lord in how we handle our enemies etc 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 do to others as you would have them do to you Amen? Amen. This is, this is powerful. This principle, think of how many problems it could solve in our lives, in our marriages, in our parenting, in our families and churches, in different cultural issues that we'll look at in just a moment. In everything. Do to others as you would have them do to you. And then Jesus says, this sums up the law and the prophets. And I think I see how this sums up the law because so much of the law was of course, how we related to God, but then how we related to one another. And so many of the instructions in Exodus and Leviticus and, and, and Deuteronomy, there's so much uh, in these first five books of the Bible, the Torah, the law of God, that is a, teaches us our conduct for how to live, how to treat our neighbors, how to deal with our, our, our finances and our, our business dealings. And we can see that really at the root, the heart of the whole law is love your neighbor is yourself or is to do unto others as you would have them do to you. Treat people like you want to be treated. And he says, but also the prophets are summed up in this. And we tend to not tie the prophetic to how we treat people. In our circles, the prophets often means to us uh, people that get future events, visions, dreams, have ecstatic spiritual experiences, predict things, war, uh, and, and tell us messages directly from God. And that is definitely a very strong part of biblical prophecy. But if we were to look through the uh, Old Testament and look at Jesus's summary of the law and the prophets, he's saying a lot of the prophets, God's warning his people about how they're treating other people, how they're treating their own people, how they're treating their neighbors, how they're treating the poor, how they're treating immigrants, how they're, how they're treating people in immoral ways, uh, as well, and we see that God, has, God cares about the way we treat one another. And one of the prophetic functions in the scripture is to wake the people of God up to say, quit mistreating people. Quit mi treating people unjustly. You're breaking my heart. I care about the way you love and honor and relate to one another and help one another and empower one another. And so we need kind of the both and, if you will. It's not just about right beliefs. The prophetic thing is about believing the right things. And this commandment, as we see all through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, it's not only about what we believe, it's about what we do, what we practice, what our actions are. We don't want, just want right belief, orthodoxy. We want right actions, orthopraxy, right? We want to practice the right practices of our faith. Our beliefs and our practices should be coupled together. And quite honestly, some of the prophetic stuff, the miracles, the revival service. That's the fun stuff. I can I get a lot of people excited, but what I'm afraid of is that if we don't also embrace the boring part of community and the challenges of community, 
and getting in basic Bible study and communing together one with another is that we will not see a sustained move of God and we will not reflect the full heart of God that wants us to be a people that are formed by the Spirit but also formed by the Word. And like many have said before, if you have the Word only, you dry up. If you have the Spirit only, you blow up. And we need the Word and the Spirit. We need a revival. I'm, we're contending for revival. We're having revival nights because I want to see outpourings of the Spirit. But uh, I believe the apostolic model of the New Testament, I, I, I love reading about the life of John Wesley right now because I believe he was a, a, a more future apostolic leader that, that went back to that first pattern that had mass awakening meetings and spiritual power and prayer and mass salvations, but also coupled that with the methodical, the Methodist practice of Bible study and community life and confessing sin to one another and learning how to live this Christian life in community. It's easy to love everybody when the, when the new wine of the Spirit is poured out in a big gathering and everybody's singing and you feel the presence and glory and people are prophesying over you and telling you how amazing you are and God has a destiny for you. I mean, I like that. I got a prophetic word this morning. I thank God for our prophetic church. It really encouraged me. It was very confirming to my life right now at this moment and it gave me strength for what God's called me to do. So I'm not saying we need less. We need more of the prophetic. We need more of God's power than we're seeing. We're going to have more revival. Now, I'm praying that our Sunday services, we can't even contain what God does, uh, what he wants to pour out in this hour. But what I know is that if I don't know how to love my neighbor, that the, the prophetic heart of God is not just the exciting experiences, but it's also the daily life. That a move of God, to, from God's eyes, doesn't just look like signs, wonders, and miracles. It also looks like healthy marriages and good parenting and loving my neighbor and having integrity in my workplace and, and, and being a generous Christian and how I live my entire life. Amen? All right. So I, I, I believe it with all of my heart that we need both and. And I believe that this sums up the law and the prophets, as Jesus said, right? This is clearly what he's teaching for us. Is, and even as that uh, Jewish teacher said, uh, treat, watch how you treat people. The rest is commentary, right? But it is. It's, it's a way for us to live. It's a way for us to be a kingdom-hearted disciple. I love what E. Stanley Jones said in his book, The Sermon on the, Mount, the Christ of the Mount, and I've, I've shared from it at different times through this series. And he said, this takes imagination, large-heartedness, and large-mindedness to see the other man's viewpoint, to enter into his feelings, to project oneself into his situation. This requires just what Jesus was insisting upon, namely that the tyranny of the self-life must be shattered in order that we may have an inner life sufficiently free from itself to enable us to project ourselves into the pains and sorrows and difficulties of others. And he would go on to say, as an, a biblical story example of the prophet Ezekiel, when Ezekiel went to the captives by the river, he went in the heat and bitterness of his spirit he would lay down the law of God to them. But God said to him, no, Ezekiel, not yet. Sit down with them and learn what they have to go through with. And for seven days, I sat where they sat, Ezekiel said. For seven days, they learned sympathy. At the close of the seven days, God said to him, now you may speak. Now he could speak for he knew. If he could only sit where people sit, if we could only sit where people sit, if we could only put ourselves in the other person's place, what a difference it would make in our actions toward them. And lastly, Stanley Jones even says he sees the gospel in this golden rule. God acts on this principle. In Jesus, he has sat where we sit. 
has been subjected to the same limitations, the same temptations, the same tortures that wring our hearts, our God knows. Not from the scrutiny of heaven, but from the sufferings of earth. He puts himself in the other person's place. He treats men as he would like to be treated if we were man, if he were man and we were God. It's powerful. God loves us with that kind of love that he took it upon himself to save us by putting himself in our position so that we could occupy the position that he holds of freedom from sin and the gift of eternal life. That's amazing. How would events be played out in the Christian, if the Christians and Christian leaders in this day practiced the golden rule? I look at what's happening to our police officers and it's heartbreaking to see people that have given their lives to serve. You could always make an argument that there's bad apples. There's pastors that mistreat people. There's parents that mistreat people. Of course, there's always bad actors, but these people have given their lives and put themselves in the most risky place in society on usually a daily basis. Could have a gun drawn on them, a knife pulled, helping people that are in mental illness, uh, crazy uh, drug rages, and our police go there and put their life on the line to protect us and serve us, and they become cursed, they become despised. There's a record number of them dealing with mental illness, uh, with dropping out of the police force because society is dishonoring them. And as the Christians, we should, we should treat them the way we want to be treated, right? We should, we should treat them with respect and honor. What would it look like if we gave officers something different than what they were receiving from the world in this hour. And we became blessing, and we were blessing, and we were honoring, and we were respecting uh, how, they've, how they've come to a place to serve. So important. Um, race issues. Uh, I think, what if we started to apply the golden rule to race issues, and we didn't let our political party or the challenges that we're facing um, in the culture define us more than the word of God, and then the power, the simple power of the golden rule. And, you know, I love being a Pentecostal charismatic. And very early in our foundations, there was a lot of racism. If you look at the life of William Seymour and even how Pentecost sprang about, there was a lot of divisions, unfortunately. But I'd say over the years, I saw a lot of charismatic and Pentecostal leaders that I respect start to try to bridge um, the, the division and the hurt that's been caused by slavery, that's been caused by Jim Crow in this nation. And a lot of people in the prayer movement, promise keepers, intercessor movements, they took it upon themselves as Pentecostal charismatics to say, let's see a healing, let's see a unity, let's see a transformation between the relationships of whites and blacks in America. They did that with Native Americans as well. Like, let's, let's, let's see the, these, these hurts and wounds healed by the power of God. And honestly, my heart is that we would help minorities, immigrants, all throughout our community, not just by prayer services, as some of my friends have talked to me about from the black community. Let's just not cry and have prayer services, but let's do some economic empowerment. Let's mentor young people. Let's, like, I'm not talking about a government program that I'm preaching about right now. I'm talking about the church helping real people get empowered and lifted out of poverty and say, we want to demonstrate that we walk in the opposite spirit and that we have fruits and actions that help people not just have political talking points and social media posts, Right? I'm not saying there's nothing a government should do differently, but I'm just saying, let's be a people that live it by the grace of God. And he needs to help us with that because we've got a long ways to go. But what I'm trying to say is I saw Pentecostal charismatic groups leading the way in this, but I honestly believe that we started to take a step back in the last several years of political events 
and culture war issues in our nation, where now leaders and people that used to be on the forefront of wanting reconciliation and wanting to sit down, white and black leaders, I've seen white leaders want to pull back and be quiet because they're like, people might think I'm a Marxist. They might think I believe all the tenets of critical race theory. They might think that uh, I'm, all, I'm all engaged with Black Lives Matter. And I get it. If I say anything trying to talk about us honoring or loving others, like I could get that message. Like, is our pastor becoming a lib? Is he under a spirit of whatever? You know, like, um, no, I'm trying to practice the golden rule. I'm trying to put myself as a white man and leader in the church and say, what would it be like to be a black person in our community? And to think, how can I treat them like I would want to be treated if I had their history, their pain, their story, their opportunities or lack of opportunities? How would I want someone to treat me? That's all I'm saying. What would it be like? Let's not be afraid to offend our party line. Let's not be afraid to offend what we think is going on in the culture to honor the heart of Jesus. We should be more afraid of offending his heart than offending the cultural narrative that we're under. And our cultural narrative's a little confusing right now because there's pretty much two cultural narratives that I think are both devoid of the fullness of God's kingdom because we've gotten so segregated by right and left and political stuff and Jesus just isn't having none of that because he doesn't come to take a side, he comes to take over. And I will not compromise on that point. Because that's who he is. We must be aligned with the king and the values of his kingdom. We've got all these cultural issues going on that people are so afraid to speak about anything. Anything that might upset the cultural narrative. We must be careful to honor the heart of God. We've got all these theological divisions. They just, come, they just happen in every generation. It gets recycled. I'm seeing so much division between Christians about women in ministry, uh, about denominational differences right now, and just this tearing apart of one another. And I believe it breaks the heart of God. And we might have differences of how we see different theological areas lived out in our churches or our life, but why don't we try to come to a point of understanding where we put ourselves in somebody else's shoes and treat them the way we want to be treated even in our disagreements. I'm even seeing some reformed people, they're having a big debate right now with all this anger and stuff and judgment attached to it over debating whether Christians should be sympathetic or empathetic. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like we're gonna, you're like gonna like lose your mind over the difference between the words sympathy and empathy and rebuke other, it's just craziness, right? But why don't we try to, to, to come together in what unites us rather than always focus on what divides us? And moral issues. I mean, this, this, goes to a per, this goes to moral issues. This goes down to, um, as leaders in the body of Christ, there is, oh man, there's been so much. Sadly, we're seeing leaders fall left and right. I'm like, how do we read, the, how do I, how, and, and God help me, I, I've been under pressure, I've been under temptation before. I, I, but when people are reading this Bible, how can they be sexually abusing people that they're leading spiritually when they're obviously not treating that victim like they would want to be treated? And we have sociopathic behavior in some of our leaders where they literally, something's not right. I'm not justifying it, but something's so wrong, they're so blinded and deceived that they're able to undermine the very thing that they preach. And we've got whole churches and movements that have covered for leaders' sin and disregarded the victim. And we've got to treat ourselves, we've got to treat victims of sexual abuse and leadership abuse like we would want to be treated if we were in their shoes. And I believe God restores fallen leaders. I absolutely believe that uh, with all my heart. But I believe that if we are covering for leaders' sin to keep people in pain, we're not practicing the golden rule. We're not thinking of how we treat people uh, like we would want to be treated. And we've got to be a safe place for people to be healed and people to be rescued from injustices that are happening against them. 
What about family issues if we practice the golden rule? What if we treated our spouse the way we want to be treated? My wife's really good at this. If my uh, frustration level is increasing, she often gives me a blessing when I don't deserve it. And it diffuses things so quick because she treats me the way I want to be treated. One of my mentors, Bishop Joseph Matera, was online on Twitter and um, a, a, a Christian academic that probably leans a little bit more left uh, wing um, shared one of Joseph Matera's articles or Twitter threads or something like that. And he said, here's, a typical, here's what a typical like, Christian nationalist looks like. Um, and basically says, he acts like he's not, but if you look at what he says, this is what, how they really are. You know? And so Joe says, oh, well, thank you for your input on my article. And I just want you to see that uh, here's some other things I've written that might be of interest to you that would give you a fuller perspective of my work. And, you know, he's like, I'm still trying to learn, so I really appreciate your time to dialogue. And the guy, like, apparently read some of his other stuff and then started following him on Twitter and then start sharing some of Joe's newer articles. Because if you knew Joe, he was not being treated with a golden rule. He's not a Christian nationalist. He's written against nationalism. He's, like, on the forefront, I think, in the, amongst white church leaders of helping bring reconciliation with black church leaders. And anyway, he's done some amazing work that's very balanced, very biblical, very holistic framework that doesn't really fully align with the right or the left uh, uh, if, you, if you read his body of work. And, uh, but I was so impressed by his graciousness. I would have been like, my stress would have gone up. I probably started blasting this guy. I've got some maturity. Pray for me, right? I got some maturity to grow in. But I would have been like, this is a false accusation. No, look, at, you don't know what I believe. But Joe's like, I want to learn. And what Joe did, he, he treated the other guy with the golden rule. He treated that guy like he wanted to be treated. And he flipped somebody that was kind of an enemy of his ideas to become a friend. Right? So in our interactions with other Christians that see things differently than us, that are sometimes ideologically opposed, right? What, what would happen if we practiced this in our neighborhoods with people that weren't Christians? And it's pretty sad to me to see how Christians in our current culture sometimes treat people that are immigrants, that are different, that from different religions, that act scared of people, that look different than us, that believe different than us. We should be treating people the way we want to be treated. We should be hospitable. We should be loving people. Even in our parenting even when our kids need discipline, this could even be a powerful principle in our homes, not just our marriages, but even in our parenting, right? So on every level, the personal level, the workplace, national issues, it doesn't mean that everybody's gonna come to agreement, but hey, if somebody disagrees with me, I at least like to know that they took the time to understand where I was coming from, not that they just judged me with a broad brush and started blasting me as some stupid idiot, Right? but that they took the time to say, so this is what you believe? Is this how you see it? Can you give me more context than that? And then they repeat it to me and I go, yeah, that, I think you actually kind of understand where I'm coming from. And they go, well, I don't really see it that way. Okay, that's all right. Okay, but if we treat it, I want, it, I want people to treat me that way. So it's, it's important for me to treat others that way. We talked about this earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, right? With the measure that we use, it gets used on us. The way that we judge others, that's how we get judged. And so it's very important that we learn to treat others the way we are treated. This is the golden rule. This is what sums up the law and the prophets is, is that we treat others the way that we ourselves want to be treated. And there is much wisdom. There is much challenge for us in this, but there is much liberty in this. And I would even tell you true spirituality, true Christ likeness would come from us by his grace living out the golden rule. Amen. And then Jesus goes on to the two gates. He talks about the golden rule and the two gates. And he says, 
There's two different gates and they're, they're opposite each other. It's the narrow gate versus the wide gate. The narrow gate is a small gate. It's on a narrow road. It leads to life and few find it. Very few find this, find this gate, find this road. And then there's the wide gate that's the opposite. It's the broad road. It leads to destruction. And many enter through the wide gate. Many, many are on the broad road or the wide road. And many go through the wide gate or the broad gate. I mean, how wide is it? How big is it? It's like most people are on it. Like, did you see who's there? Like, everybody, man. Everybody's doing it. I used to work with this guy, and he was like, my mom would always say, if everybody else in the world jumped off a bridge and died, would you do it too? And he'd go, yeah, mom, because there'd be a big enough pile of dead bodies that I wouldn't fall very far. All right? But like every, every, like everybody, like it's the way that everybody goes. It's the way that seems right to a man. It's like they talk about the cultural zeitgeist, the narrative that just the world is following. We don't got time for that, church. We're supposed to be on the narrow road. We're supposed to be a different way. If our life and our direction looks like everybody else, that should wake up and alarm preachers of the gospel in this hour. I don't see how people can read the Bible when the Bible warns. Be careful if you heap up teachers for yourself that tell you what your itching ears want to hear. Be careful that you're not on the broad road that everybody else is on. And then churches and Christians and leaders and theologians, they pretty much start twisting the Bible. They just sound like everything that's happening in the culture and the world is okay. And I'm like, are you reading the same Bible? If everybody's on that path, maybe you're on the wrong one. We're so divided over politics, we're supposed to be divided over the true path of life. The wide road and the narrow road. Not divided in the spirit of hostility or anger. Not that kind of division, but we're supposed to make a choice. We're supposed to be distinctive people. That we're on one road. And we, we notice, like, sometimes we think of, like, maybe these two roads are, like, running next to each other, right? Like, we got the narrow road and we got the wide road. And I'm on the narrow road, man. I'm walking with Jesus. But then temptation comes, old girlfriend, old boyfriend calls, whatever. That booze is before us, that computer Internet porn is just a click away that whatever it could be, whatever temptation it might be, and then we kind of get pulled into the wide road, and now I'm on the wide road, but at least I'm still working forward. It's just a struggle, this Christian life. Oh, I, I go to a good church service, and I get back on the narrow road, and then I go, and I, and I, but I'm still, uh, and, you know, and we have this struggle. This is not that. This is not what Jesus is saying, because he's saying that these two paths lead to different directions. Like, if you tell me today, like, I'm going down the road today, and I'm not really sure if I'm going to Mexico or Canada. I think I'm going to kind of go back and forth between the two. It's like, do you know your geography? Because, like, you're going to one or the other. And if you go quite a ways towards Canada and then you decide you want to go to Mexico, like, you're backtracking a long ways. Because these roads lead different directions. They got different destinations. I like what um, R.T. France said in his commentary on the Gospel of Matthew. He said, the first contrast is stark and clear between destruction and life. This is not a matter of more and less successful attempts to follow the lifestyle of the kingdom of heaven, but of being either in or out, saved or lost. The two routes lead in opposite directions and their destinations are totally apart. Without using those words, this saying sets before us the radical alternative of heaven or hell. Two roads, two different gates, two different destinations. We enter into heaven or hell. We enter into life or destruction. There's no 
bones about it. The early church had a thing called the Didache. It's the teaching. We've been going through this in our first principles series in our groups. And the Didache uh, was a body of teaching that the apostles passed around to establish churches and believers in the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And so all through the New Testament, you see phrases like the teaching, the doctrine, the faith, right? And, uh, or the first principles. And, and this is all a part of the same concept. There's this body of teaching. Now there's a document that was discovered uh, an, an old document called the, actually called the Didache, called the teaching. It doesn't go back far enough for us to know for sure if this is the exact same Didache teaching that was used in the early church, but it's obviously full of scripture and it must be very closely aligned with it or at least based upon what was circulating in the early church amongst the apostles, right? And so this teaching, they, the, the Didache, it starts out this very famous Christian document that would have been like a new believer's tool or a tool to root people in their faith and ground them so that they could, they could know how to believe and know how to live in the Christian life. The first two verses of the Didache were, there are two ways, one of life and one of death. And there is a great difference between the two ways. The way of life is this, first of all, thou shalt love the God that made thee, secondly, thy neighbor as thyself, and all things whatsoever thou wouldest not have befall thyself, neither do thou unto another. And so they actually combined this whole concept of Matthew 7, of the golden rule and the two paths. This is the very first thing. So when you got the Didache and you were going to get established in your faith and you're going to, what is a part of the church? There's two ways. One's life, one's death. They're very different from one another. And so I want to ask you, what path are you on? Are you on the path of life, the path of the destruction? Have you entered through the narrow gate or the wide gate? Is your life headed in a direction that seems right to the world, that seems right to a man? The Bible says, the Proverbs say, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is death. And that's the thing, is that you can have a very fun life on the broad road. And you can feel amazing. You could live your whole life and feel great and end up in destruction. It's very sobering. You can have a lot of challenges on the narrow road, but yet you could be in, in the path that leads to life. There was a young lady that a few years back, she um, was in her 30s. She had started, grew up in a Christian home, but got into a party lifestyle and became like a full-blown alcoholic. She was very successful in business, but yet would just drink herself blind at night and in her 30s she wanted to get back to God and she moved into her parents house to uh, sober up and because of what was happening in her body she actually had a seizure right after she decided to turn her life around and a heart attack and was stuck in a hospital nearby here in a medically induced coma and they said she has no brain activity she's not going to live just we'll leave her alive for the family to basically come say their goodbyes well, they had a missionary family friend that had come to one of our represent conferences over the last few years and in Central America. And this missionary wrote to me and said, will you please go visit this young lady? She has a twin sister. She has an amazing family. She was just about ready to turn her life around. They're very sad. We believe God could do a miracle. Would you go to the hospital and pray that God would raise her up and heal her? Go meet her mom. So I said, okay, we'll go. So we go to the, to the hospital and I think it was actually James and I who does our, our video work now before he moved to Texas and we went and prayed for her and we didn't really see progress at first 
And then Pastor Herb and I went and prayed. They had moved her to another room, and they were saying, we're going to unplug her. She's not going to make it. It's too late. There was not enough of a miracle physically at this time to keep her alive, unfortunately. But something did happen to where she woke up and she opened her eyes. And she regained brain function for a short window of time, maybe about two to three weeks or so. And in this meantime of us praying and attending for a miracle in the hospital, this missionary flew up, this, the, the wife of this couple, she flew up to visit her friend's daughter in the hospital and minister to her. And she had a lot of time, so she would just sit there like all day. And she started to figure out that not only were her, was her eyes open, but that she had, her brain function had returned. And so she couldn't talk, though, but she figured out that she could blink. And so even though she couldn't move and she couldn't talk, she could blink. And she started using a blink thing for yes and no to yes and no questions. And so this missionary started asking her about her relationship with the Lord Jesus through yes or no questions. And it came to find out that she was so distraught and so disappointed about her failures as an alcoholic that she felt like God would never accept her and that she deserved to die because of all the sinful things that she had done in her life. And she was so bitter and angry and full of self-hatred. And this missionary began to share the gospel of Jesus with her. That all you need to do is get on the right path. It doesn't matter what your past is. It doesn't matter what your brokenness is. We've all spent time on the road to destruction, but Jesus offers you a better way on the narrow path. He offers you himself. And if you come through Jesus, who is the door, the gate, the way into our salvation, then your whole life can be transformed. And this young lady who couldn't talk and who couldn't move and was, and was, was seeing her life pass before her eyes, God stepped in in his mercy and brought this broken sinner, this alcoholic, on the narrow path, and her life will never be the same again. And although she left this earth just a few weeks after this, she's living forever and ever because she entered through the path of life. There's a famous, a well-known businessman, and he got to the mid kind of part of his life, midlife crisis, if you want to call it that, and he was not sure what his impact in the world should be he was, grew up in the church. He was a Christian. He served his church. He was generous. But he loved the art of the deal. Amazing businessman. Very, very successful. Uh, and he hired a business consultant. He said, I can't figure my life out. I'm not happy. And I want to know what I'm supposed to give the rest of my life to. So he sits his business consultant down. And he says, the business consultant says, tell me about your life, your priorities, your history. What's of value to you? And at the end of his little talk, the business consultant goes, he draws a little box on a piece of paper and puts it in front of him and says, all I've heard about this whole time is two things, Jesus and money. And he goes, if you want your life to make sense for the next half of your life, you've got to put one of those two things in your box, but you only get one. Do you want the rest of your life to be about Jesus or to be about money? And all of a sudden, the fear of God gripped him and he was trembling. He's like, what am I going to pick? What am I going to pick? And he picked Jesus he put Jesus in that box and he actually didn't leave the business world because God didn't call him to do that. But he, re, he restructured his whole business around how he could make a difference with his faith through other business entrepreneurs. And he started to train and mentor other business entrepreneurs how to be successful and how to incorporate their faith and their work together. And he delegated things to other people in his business to run the different areas that he could get his hands off and he could do ministry through his business. But you got one box you get to pick one road. What do you put in that box? Do you put Jesus in the narrow road? Because I'm going to tell you, it's not just, the, the narrow road represents a path and the gate, the narrow gate, it represents him. I believe it represents his gospel. It represents who he is and what he's done and that he calls you unto himself. 
This isn't just some, the, the gospel is not some health message. Like, you better stay on that narrow road or you might get over on that wide road. No, it's that you, no matter your color, no matter your sex, no matter your income level, no matter your education level, I don't care if you're a drug addict or you're a Satanist. I don't care if you're an atheist scientist. I don't care if you've been in a rebellion to God. I don't care if you've hated God. I don't care if you're self-righteous and religious and you think that you're better than other people. You gotta get on the narrow road and you gotta go through the narrow gate of Jesus Christ himself if you want to taste of the treasures of eternal life. You've got one road, one gate to put in that box. Is it the narrow road or the wide road? Is it Jesus or the world? You've got to choose. He gave everything for you. Now people are like, so I'm really screwed up still. Did I pick Jesus or am I not saved? You know, I think there's the fear of the Lord that hangs over that question for all of us. The Bible teaches us that if there's no change of life or direction, if there's no fruit of repentance, have we really, have we really repented? We have to take that seriously, but we have to also take seriously that it's Jesus. He's the path. He's the gate. He's the one that keeps us. It's not about our own human perfection. I think both things must be intention. We have to examine, has my life changed at all in light of me following Jesus? If not, you might be on the wrong road. God is ultimately your judge, but I feel like I'm gonna stand before God one day and the Bible says that teachers fall under stricter judgment and I, I take that seriously. And I don't want anybody to feel crushed or overwhelmed like God would never accept them because they have some sin in their life. And I also don't want people to think that it's cool for them to live however they want and to show no fruits of repentance. And as long as they prayed a prayer that said, I don't want to go to hell and I want to go to heaven, then I'm going to be cool. I believe you guys, you got to change roads. you got to change directions. This is what biblical repentance is all about. Repentance does not mean that I have to hold it together and how perfect I repent and how, no. It means that I change my mind that I can't do it on my own, that I can't live the ways of the world, that I'm going to turn off that wide road. I'm going to turn onto the narrow road. I'm going to go a different direction. I'm going to go the way of Jesus Christ because I believe in the power of his death, burial, and resurrection. And I believe that he alone saves and then on that walk, on that path, going through that gate, he changes me on the walk with him. It's not by my works. It's not, it's not even by, but it's about my yielding to him, to the path that he lays before me. And I'd like you to stand on your feet as we close in prayer. We're going to do a water baptism in a few minutes. But I'd like you to stand on your feet as we close in prayer today. Because if you're here today and you're not sure that you're on the narrow path and you want to get on the narrow path, you want to get on the way of Christ, you want to receive forgiveness of sins, it's a good day to give your life to Jesus. In fact, I would tell you, don't delay. Come as you are. You can't be changed. You don't decide, you know, you don't, you don't like get all dressed up and cleaned up and changed before you get, you just get on the path and he's the one that changes you. You give, you yield, you surrender because he's given everything for you and it's all by his grace. It's not by your works or your righteousness or you measuring up. It's about you deciding to turn your life to him as he's revealed himself to you by his goodness and grace. Is there anybody that's here today and you'd say, that's me, pastor. I've been on the broad road that leads to destruction and I want to get on the narrow road that leads to life. Is there anybody that would raise your hand? There's one. Is there anybody else that would say, I want to follow Jesus? Anybody else? There's a couple of hands going up. You might be watching a part of our online family or audience. When you're not right with God, you can simply make this declaration. 
you can make this declaration. Jesus, deliver me from the wrong road, the wrong path, the wrong gate. I've sinned, I've gone astray, and I need a new life. I choose to follow you. I give my life to you, Jesus. Be my Lord. I believe you died on the cross and you rose from the dead for me. And now I want to follow you. Let me never be the same again. Help me with the power of your spirit. You pray something from your heart, just very simple. Just believing that Jesus is the right way. and you, you, you'll, you'll never, ever be the same again. We want to talk to you about water baptism that you're going to see in just a moment. Receiving the spirit and what it means to walk after God. And we're a family that wants to help you follow Christ. But if you're saying yes, we'd really like to meet you and give you a Bible today and see how we can connect to you. I'm going to ask you to come up to my wife, Pastor Grace, right here. She's got a Bible for you. If you just were one of those that raised your hand, would you, do you feel okay coming up? Is that okay? Just to come get a Bible from her right now. And we just want to celebrate and thank God for your step of faith. Is that all right? Just come on. We love you. We love you. We want to pray with you. Some of you, are. there are some other hands raised. We want to pray with you. It's hard to know if it's a first-time decision always or a rededication, but we love you and God wants to do something great in your life. So we want to pray with you and encourage you, lead you in a prayer of salvation and just what it means to start to follow Christ. I want to just pray a blessing over you. And if you're able to stay, I know some people need to get their kids or you have appointments, we understand, but we have a water baptism. If you're able to stay to celebrate some new people joining um, themselves to the church through water baptism and joining, you know, identifying publicly with their faith in Christ. Uh, we, we want to do that. So you'll be able to see it on the screen in just a moment, or you can even go to the back um, and watch where our baptismal is in the back corner there. Um, and so either place, we'd love for you to stay if you're able to. So Father, I pray your blessing over your people. We thank you for those saying yes to the Lord in a decision of their faith and those saying yes to the Lord in water baptism. And we pray that you'd be glorified. And Lord, I pray that we, your people, Lord, that you would empower us by your grace to live the golden rule, to put ourselves in the shoes of others and treat others the way we want to be treated and that we would be all about the narrow road, that we would just, we would cling close to Christ, and Christ, you would cling close to us, that you would hold us, that you would keep us, that you would sustain us on this narrow path, that we would not lose heart, that we would not forsake our faith in you, for what you have done for us is precious, Lord. And we thank you that no matter what cost we face, no matter what challenges we might face on the narrow road, you are worthy of all of our lives. We give you praise and honor and glory today. And we ask that your grace and your peace would be upon all of your children today in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. God bless you today. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope you enjoyed. Have a great day.